Mark chapter 6. Before I get into the text, I've got to make a confession. I've made some pretty bad purchases in my lifetime. Some impulsive, irresponsible purchases that I would later regret. Have you done that? Have I, have I ever told you the story of when I purchased a magic ad belt in college? Have I told you that story? I was a freshman in college and I was kind of in that, that stage of life where I, I just, a six pack was important to me. It's not as important to me now, even though I still have one, it's not that important to me. I mean, I don't look in the mirror any more than three minutes a day at it. So it's not that big of a deal anymore. But it used to be a big deal. And uh, I, I, I was, this was on a Friday night, I was at my grandma's house, Miss Lannis's house, um, who, who lived about 30 minutes away from campus. By the way, I'm not quite sure, Mike, to this day, why I was so concerned about a six-pack in Bible college. I couldn't even go from my, my, my room to the bathroom without being fully clothed. <laughs> this college is crazy. Like training me like Moses, put on a robe and walk through the wilderness kind of ministry, I guess. But nonetheless, I don't know why I was concerned about it. I mean, I guess I, I knew God knew I would meet Jenny and she would need that in her life one day. <laughs> Maybe that's why, babe. Maybe. Yeah. So no regrets. Um, I was, I was at Miss Landis' house. I'd go over there to do laundry on the weekends or whatever. I was watching TV. It must have been late at night because an infomercial came on about a magic ad belt. The reason this was so like, um, tempting to me is, is because of how they portrayed this, this ad belt. They said basically all you had to do is put it on. And if you did that um, for like 10 weeks or so, eight weeks or so, then you're, you're going to have a six pack of abs for only two easy payments of 19.99, And so, and then they started showing a, a guy that was sitting in his man chair, drinking tea, watching TV with this ab belt on. Like, that's all you got to do? Like, I'm down with that. And, and, and then they go to another scene and they, they show a woman who's ironing clothes and, and, and vacuuming the carpet and she has her ab belt on. I'm like, dude, if she can iron and get abs, I'm, I'm down. I, that's what I want to do. And, and so I, I order it. This is David's before Amazon Prime, so I have to wait like 14 days for the ab belt to get in. I'm on pins and needles the whole time. And I get it, and, and I'm in my dorm room at college, take my shirt off, and I put that ab belt on, and I crank the sucker to high. And in that moment, I felt like my intestines were being sucked out of my gut. And I'm so ticked off because this guy was on his man chair watching TV, drinking tea, and the ad belt wasn't even phasing him at all. The woman, the woman was ironing clothes like the ad belt wasn't even, I put the ad belt on, I'm like in the electric chair. It's awful. I felt tricked. I felt duped. It was, it was bad. And here's, here's what happened. The sales guy on the infomercial was really good at highlighting the benefits of the ad belt and hiding the cost, hiding the pain. Has that ever happened to you? You bought something that you would later regret because you focused more on the benefits of it and not on the cost. I do have good news for you today. I'm not a salesman and I won't be in my sermon today. Today will not be anything like an infomercial. 
I will not just tell you the benefits of following Jesus as we go through Mark. Today, I'm going to tell you the cost of following Jesus. I will not only highlight the mountaintops of being a disciple, I'm going to show you the valleys of being a disciple. Why? Because Mark did. Mark went to great lengths to do that. Do you remember who he was writing to? I said this at the beginning of the series. Mark is writing his gospel based on an eyewitness of, of the disciple Peter 40 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's writing, his original readers were these Gentile converts in Rome. And Mark was not going to dupe them or trick them into following Jesus. He wasn't going to sell Jesus to anybody. He wasn't going to highlight all the benefits of following Jesus without being clear on the cost of following Jesus. Let me explain. If you remember last week, we studied when Jesus sent his disciples in six groups of two. If you're in connection group today, we discussed that in more detail. We ended the message last Sunday by showing that the disciples were very successful on their first ever solo missions trip. Let me remind you, go to verse 12 and 13 of chapter 6. And they, that's the disciples, went out and preached that men should repent. And here's the success. They cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So we ended on a high note. Their first ever missionary journey apart from Jesus was highly successful. And I could imagine in my mind's eye at least that, that after they got back and reassembled after verse 13, these disciples are high-fiving and maybe chest-bumping and celebrating and talking about all these stories of changed lives. It, it, the, in my mind's eye, it's, it's like when a baseball player hits a home run, the rest of the team comes out of the dugout and often meets him at home plate and they're celebrating his victory with him. I can imagine these six groups of, of two are come back together and they're celebrating and talking and testifying like the young people will tonight from their experience at camp. But Mark doesn't mention any of that. Instead of highlighting what might have taken place at like a, a post-missions trip celebrity party, celebration party, rather, Mark goes immediately into the gruesome death of John the Baptist by way of decapitation. I mean, what a momentum killer. Why did Mark do that? Here's why. Mark is saying to his original readers, he's saying to us today, yes, you'll have your share of success when you follow Jesus. And yes, there will be many benefits and blessings to following Jesus. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea up front because at some point following Jesus will cost you. And he used the death of John the Baptist as exhibit A. In other words... Mark is telling his original readers that if they seriously and faithfully follow Jesus, there's a chance they may end up just like John the Baptist. And they need to be ready for that. What's interesting is that Mark only uses five verses in chapter one to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist. He uses 16 verses in chapter six to talk about the death of John the Baptist. And here's why, because his burden was to be ultra clear about the high cost of following Jesus. Look at verse 16 and 17. I mean, verse 16 through, or verse 14 through 16, I'm sorry. And King Herod heard of him, talking about Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead and therefore mighty works to show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias and others said that it is a prophet or it's one of the, or it's one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. 
He is risen from the dead. Look up here for a moment. As the disciples were doing ministry and spreading the name of Jesus abroad in the region of Galilee, Herod heard about it. The Herod in this text is the son, one of four sons, of Herod the Great. This Herod's name is Herod Antipas. He was over the region of Galilee where Jesus was ministering, so he would have heard a lot of the commotion surrounding the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. And what's interesting is that while most people are saying this Jesus guy is just some kind of guy like the Old Testament prophets, Herod believed he was John the Baptist. He thought he was John the Baptist, whom he beheaded, and, and, and now was risen from the dead. You know why he thought that? Because he had a guilty conscience. That led Mark then to write a flashback to his readers of John the Baptist's death and all the gory details. And from these verses, I'm going to deduct three lessons about faithfully following Jesus. What do we learn from John the Baptist's death about the cost of following our Savior? The first is found in verse 17 and 18. Let's read it. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Here's the first point. Faithfully following Jesus contradicts the world's values. Follow me, please, to understand and appreciate this point. You have to understand what's going on here. And it's sick and it's twisted and it's perverted and it's not biblical. History tells us that Herod Antipas met his niece Herodias while they were in Rome. At the time that he met her, she was married to his half-brother, whose name was Herod Philip. So that's not just making her his niece at the time, but also his sister-in-law. Weirdly and sinfully, they were attracted to each other. That's not natural. I mean, this is like the hills of Arkansas on steroids. <laughs> Combined, Herod and Herodias had four teeth, I guarantee it. <laughs> but it gets worse. They both ended up leaving their spouses and marrying each other. A clear act of perverted adultery. Now, this is where John the Baptist comes in. Verse 18 says he called out Herod and Herodias for their sinful marriage. Man, he had guts. I mean, he had big time guts. This was the prophet that, was, that, that wore a leather girdle for a uniform. And he put camel's hair all over it. And he ate wild locusts in the middle of the desert for his meals. I mean, I talked about the, the show Alone last Sunday. He would have won the show. He was a man's man, but not only that, he was a mouthpiece of God. And here's what I want to say before I make application. You and I are not necessarily called to be exactly like John the Baptist in every way. Okay, the idea of a prophet in the Bible days was a man who, was, who stood up uh, and spoke out against sin and for righteousness as a representative of God. And they did this because God had not yet fully inspired the canon of Scripture as we know it today. And so he had to speak to his people directly through human men. But because we have the full canon of Scripture today, hey, we don't need prophets. God's, God has already said everything he wants us to know right here. All we got to do is live it and preach it. So I am sorry to disappoint some of you 
when I tell you that you're not called to be the next John the Baptist, meaning you don't have to wear a girdle, eat honey for a living, and call out everybody's sin on Facebook. However, you are called to faithfully follow Jesus, just like John the Baptist did, in the midst of a world that isn't concerned about Jesus. And you are called to live according to the values of God's word in, in the midst of a world that hardly has values, let alone biblical values. And if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus like John the Baptist did, uh, listen, your lifestyle, your values, and your stand for truth will contradict that of the world around you. Not because you're being unloving, not because you're being antagonistic, but because you're living and standing on truth. How might that happen? How might the values of a true follower of Christ contradict the values of the world that we live in? Well, let's just talk about what the text talks about. Let's talk about marriage. It's interesting that John spoke out against one of the most controversial subjects of the day, which was marriage and adultery and divorce. When the, his own religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, would never tread on that. It's amazing who John spoke the truth to, the most powerful man in his region. You know why he did that? Because he had the authority of God. Hear me, the church has the authority of God too. It's called the Bible. And we should stand on the Bible, we should preach the Bible, and we should live the Bible, no matter how controversial it may be, and no matter whose lifestyle our stand might contradict. God is ultra clear, church family, about what constitutes a marriage because he's the one that created it. Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve. A biblical marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That is God's original design and he gave no such permission to adjust that design. Yet the world sees marriage differently today in several ways. First, the world doesn't even see the necessity of marriage. I'm not saying this unlovingly. I'm saying this biblically. That God is all about the covenant relationship of marriage. He created it. He instituted it. He didn't just create sex to enjoy whenever you want. He, he created sex as a byproduct of a healthy companionship within marriage. And the world today says, you know, marriage spouses, they're kind of like cars. You got to test drive them before you commit. Hello. That's not God's plan. I love you. I love you. I love everybody that's in here. I promise you that. I'm not picking on anybody. I don't know your story. I don't know your situation. Here's what I know. That God has ordained marriage to be the place in which you can have a sexual union. You can't have the benefits without the commitment. And God desires that. And by the way, he commands it. It's not a church's rule. It's not a preacher's rule. It's not a pet peeve. It is in the Bible. You know how the world differs with us in marriage? The, the, the world no longer believes that a marriage is reserved for one man and one woman. I'm not trying to be hateful. I want to be clear. The Bible still teaches and is very clear that marriage is between 
One man and one woman. Not one man and one man, or one woman and one woman, or one man and several women. It is between one man and one woman. By the way, for one life. You understand that God does not desire for the covenant of marriage to ever be broken. Now, I'm going to preach in Mark chapter 10 about God's idea of divorce and remarriage. We're going to get there, so hang on. And there's a lot of clarity there. But lovingly, I say this, divorce is never God's ideal. Ever. He can redeem our regrets. Many of the finest members of Fellowship Baptist Church sit in this midst and worship and serve and give and we love them and they love this church and they're divorced. But God doesn't intend for that to happen. The world says this, if we stop working on our marriage and we fall out of love, then we just move on. Literally, they're that flippant about it. We just move on. No such thing as forgiveness. No such thing as perseverance. If, if we don't love them anymore, we just leave. We go and find us somebody. There are hundreds of no-fault divorces today. Well, the judge told me I could, but that judge didn't. And his word is the word that matters. Well, that's unloving. No, it's not. No, it's not. I love every sinner I'm preaching to because I'm a big one. It would be unloving for me to not tell the truth. If we instantly default to, well, that's unloving, then we have bought into the world's value system. And the church, as the world goes down here, the church can't go down with it. The uniqueness and power of a church is that it's different. We're salt. We're light. Why is light so powerful? It's opposite of darkness. If we stop being different, we stop making a difference. As the world comes down in their standard of marriage, we can't come down. We must love everybody, no matter if they've been in a divorce or not, no matter if it's their fault or it's not their fault. We receive everybody. We love everybody. We help everybody. I counsel marriages on a weekly basis. I have a huge heart of compassion for for marriages, no matter where they've been or where they're going. I want to help people love their spouse. But at the end of the day, God wants it to be a covenant that lasts forever. And he said this, what God has put together, let no man take asunder, join asunder, rip it apart. He said this, I form the covenant. I'll tell you when it can be broken. Not man. I make the rules. And it's not just marriage. That's what John the Baptist was facing, but it's not just marriage. It's also just just how you choose to live your life that contradicts with the world. The things you do, the places you go, the people you're most often with, the substances you put into your body. The world says this, how one lives is totally up to them. It's called relative truth. It's called situational ethics. What's true for you is not true for me. What's okay for you is not okay with me. What you do is is your business. What I do is my business. We'll never judge one another. We'll just love one another. And I do agree that we ought to love one another. And I do agree that there are some gray areas in Scripture. And we ought to give one another the liberty and leeway in some of these matters of conscience. But here's what I know as a preacher of the Word of God. The Bible is not gray on everything. The Bible's clear on some stuff. 
The Bible still says, be ye holy, for I am holy. The Bible still says, whatsoever ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The Bible still says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, because you are not your own, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Hey, the Bible still says by name that followers of Christ ought to put away things like anger and bitterness and envy and fornication and greed and lying and backbiting and laziness. Hey, the Bible is still clear on how we ought to parent our kids and educate our kids and steward our finances and schedule our priorities. Hey, church, followers of Christ who are serious about living their life according to Scripture don't even have to say anything out loud to contradict the world's value system. They just have to do their best to live a pure and holy life according to scripture and that will happen hey I'm not saying that being in contradiction with people is the goal of the Christian life but it is a reality if you're living the Christian life again we aren't called to be the next John the Baptist that we're supposed to call out everyone for their sin as we see it that's our full time job point a finger but if you will worry about you and you'll focus on faithfully following Jesus yourself. Watch this. Your lifestyle and your dedication to the truth of the word of God will end up contradicting with the lifestyle and values of the world. It just will. And sadly, when that happens, opposition is inevitable. Look at verse number 19. Therefore, <clears throat> Herodias, that's Herod's wife, had a quarrel against him. The word quarrel, it means a grudge. So, so Herod's new wife, who, don't forget, happened to be his niece and sister-in-law, was holding a grudge toward John the Baptist for standing up to her husband and speaking the truth about their sin of adultery. We'll see in a minute, that grudge led her to doing whatever she could to oppose John the Baptist, to silence John the Baptist, and eventually kill John the Baptist. Hey, the old adage is true, at least in this text, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. How many agree with that? I say it this way. If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And the wisest man to ever live on the face of the earth said so. You know what he said in the book of Proverbs? It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. <laughs> Meaning when mom is not happy with you, you're safer curling up in the corner of your house in the fetal position than you are hanging out with her in the living room. That's Prater 316 translation. Hey, in the spirit of Father's Day, allow me to tell you the seven things men do that upset women. Can I do that? Just talking about Herodias' hate, right? Number one thing that men do that upset women, they lie. Number two, they're too honest. Number three, they don't talk enough. Number four, they talk too much. See where I'm going with this? Number five, they don't show emotions. Number six, they're too emotional. Number seven sums it up. They breathe. <laughs> Let's be honest, men. Sometimes that's all it takes. Can I get a witness out there? You just got to breathe wrong. They, sign, they say that behind every angry woman is a man. A man who has no idea what he did wrong. Happy Father's Day, man. I got you right there. 
Here's the second lesson we learn from the death of John the Baptist. And, and it, we learn the lesson from an angry woman. Faithfully following Jesus invites the world's opposition. It makes sense. If we're going to contradict their values, then we're going to even unintentionally invite their opposition. Now, I need to preface this, this application point. Christians should never desire to invite the world's oppositions on themselves. That's weird. Okay, we're called to, to love the people of the world. We're called to give ourselves to reaching the people of the world. We're not called to do whatever we can do and say whatever we can say in order to get the world to hate us. Having the world oppose you, listen, is not some badge of honor that you should be proud of. The point is simply this. Even if you're faithfully following Jesus humbly and not arrogantly or obnoxiously, simply because your values contradict theirs, you will eventually encounter opposition. See, the Herodiuses of the world will try and silence you, mock you, distance themselves from you, slander you, gossip about you. Not always because you brought it on yourself, but because of the decision you made or, or, or the stand that you took or the lifestyle you live contradicted with theirs and it convicted them. Listen, the world does not like to be confronted with truth that challenges their commitment to their sin. Hey, Jesus said this would happen. He was so upfront. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's you, by the way, if you're saved. Yes. Therefore, because of that, the world hateth you. It's always interesting to me, church, that the world expects the church to tolerate their sinful values. Yet at the same time, they want to silence our biblical values. Hey, in case you haven't figured out this morning, my, my sermon isn't about tricking you into following Jesus. I'm not selling you anything today. I'm not going to cheapen or water down the cost of faithfully following our Savior. So let me be real honest with you today. If you're going to raise your kids like the Bible instructs you to raise your kids, there might be other parents at work or other parents who are not part of your own family that will not agree with your parenting decisions. They won't understand them. They might even oppose you by talking negatively about you. Hey, if you're going to respond biblically to offenses and disagreements, which means you're not going to be vindictive or impulsive, but rather you're going to respond with a high amount of character and composure, the world will oppose you for that. They'll say that you're letting the other person win. They'll say you need to stand up for yourself. They'll say you need to give them a piece of your mind because your biblical response of grace will be understood by the world as weakness. If you're going to be honest in the workplace and not cheat the time clock, not fudge the numbers in your favor, not steal the sale, not bypass company policies, but instead demonstrate integrity and honesty, you might get passed up by a boss for a promotion because that boss values high performance over higher character. Hey, it might happen. Young people, let me talk to you. I'm so proud of you for the decisions you made at camp. If you're going to live sexually pure lives in 2021... If you're going to save your purity for your spouse as God intends for you to do, if you're not going to treat sex as some kind of weekend activity, but instead treat it as a God-given privilege within the bounds of marriage, then you're going to be in a minority today. And don't think for a moment that your commitment to purity will be unnoticed by the world. It will cost you when you're left out of certain conversations and miss out on certain relationships and you're no longer invited to certain places. Hey, I'm just telling you that faithfully following Jesus isn't always easy and it isn't always pleasant. You might not lose your head for following Jesus like John the Baptist did, but you'll probably lose something. 
By the way, if you're never losing anything because of your walk with Christ, are you really walking with Christ? You never have to give up anything because of your purity and your lifestyle and your values. Do your values really reflect that of the word of God? If your life is always comfortable in a world that defies God and Christianity, if you're comfortable in that world all the time, are you really a disciple today? Are you? Or do you blend into the world? Yeah. I know this message isn't pleasant. In fact, I told my class, my connection group, pray for me on this sermon. Dwayne DeVell, one of my faithful brothers and friends, spoke up and said, Pastor, it's never going to be as bad as John the Baptist. No one's going to behead you today. I said, well, I wouldn't count on that. I wanted to know who, who the security team was today. I want to know if it's the A team or the B team today. I guess we'll find out in the foyer. Here's the truth. We ought to never invite this stuff on ourselves. I'm just being clear with you. It might happen. You'd be ready for it. We've learned that faithfully following Jesus contradicts the world's values, invites the world's opposition. I want you to notice lastly more positively. Faithfully following Jesus prevents the world's regrets. Yeah. I won't take time to read the rest of the text for time's sake, but it tells the story of how Herodias put pressure on Herod to kill John. Would you follow along real quick? Let me just tell it to you. Because here, here, here's the problem. Herod couldn't really find anything worthy of death in John the Baptist's life. In fact, the text tells us that he actually liked John the Baptist's message in a weird way. It intrigued him. But Herodias kept pressuring him. And the text says that on a convenient day, is what the text says. It was a convenient day because Herod and his buddies were having a drunken party, which included a lot of sinful activities. And Herodias knew he'd be vulnerable to making poor decisions. And by the way, alcohol usually leads us to make poor decisions. Herodias did something sick and twisted. She sent her daughter... Herod's stepdaughter, Salome is what history says, to dance provocatively for Herod and his friends. And because Herod was drunk, because his stepdaughter made his friends so happy, he asked Salome to name whatever it was that she wanted and he would make it happen. So Salome went back to her mother, Herodias, and said, Daddy said this, what should I tell him? And Herodias said, oh, right where I want him. Tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. And Salome went back and said, Mama wants the head of John the Baptist. And it immediately troubled Herod deeply. At that moment, he knew exactly what Herodias had done. He had manipulated him. Look at verse 26. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his own sake and for their sake which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. Wow. Herod only killed John the Baptist because he felt like he had to. He only did it because of the pressure he was getting from those around him. Which leads me to believe that he would live the rest of his life in regret. He didn't want to do this. He didn't think he should do this, but he did. And for the rest of his life, he would go to bed every night knowing in his conscience that he killed an innocent and righteous man of God. Yes, Herod was accepted by the world in that moment, but he would live forever with regret because he would die having not been accepted by God. The contrast between Herod and John the Baptist is striking. John lost his life. 
for courageously pro proclaiming God's truth in spite of external pressures. Yet Herod took another man's life because he caved to external pressures. Which one do you think died with the most regret? The man who was accepted by God or the man who was accepted by the world around him? I guarantee you that Herod died with more regret than John the Baptist did. Listen, I realize that a message like today may scare you away from following Jesus or ever coming back to this church. Who wants to be rejected? Who wants to be opposed? Who wants to be contradicted? By the way, this is why I preach next verse, next chapter, because I can't skip sections like this if I do. But before you check out on following the Lord, think about this. What really brings the most regret? Being rejected by God like Herod? Watch here. Or being rejected by the world like John? I'd rather be rejected by the world than rejected by God. See, as followers of Christ, we have a choice to make. When we're faced with external pressure, we can be a Herod or we can be a John. We can live to enjoy acceptance from people or we can die having been accepted by God. Let's be honest this morning. Let's be honest. Most Christians, when it comes to following God or following the world, they want their cake and they want to eat it too. They want to live enough of their life for Christ to be accepted by God, but they want to live enough of their life apart from Christ to be accepted by the world. They want to live enough of their life by biblical values so they can be accepted by their church friends, but they also want to live enough of their lives by worldly values so they don't lose their unchurched friends. They want to live for Jesus on Sunday, but they want to live for the world on Friday and Saturday. And if that's you today, I would echo the words of Joshua to the Israelites. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I would ask the same question Elisha asked. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Make up your mind. I would quote James. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I don't know about you, but if I had to pick one, I'd much rather die being accepted by God than to live my life for the acceptance of this world. But Pastor Tyler, I'm going to miss out on so much. I'm going to miss out on so much. Let me quote you the lyrics of a really good song that might change your perspective on what you're really missing out on. It's a song entitled, I've Missed Out. I'm missing out on the good life according to the men of degree. I'm missing out on life's normal pleasures by standards of worldly belief. They say I'm too narrow. I should learn to just let myself go. When I think of their claims and the pleasures they name, I'll admit I have missed out. <laughs> I've missed out on the heartaches of living my life in sin. I've missed out on the sorrow of facing this world without him. I have no regrets for things that I've missed because deep in my heart, the truth was and is every day that I live. I thank God for what I've missed. Take it from somebody who grew up in a really strict home and thought for 18 years of my life, I'm missing out on everything. And on this side of it, I have a totally different perspective. Oh, I missed out. I just missed out on the world's regrets. That's it. Just missed out on being an alcoholic. Missed out on being a drug addict. Missed out on losing my virginity before I got married. Missed out on that one. 
Missed out on addiction to pornography. Missed out on wrecking my life for a decade before I came to Christ. Hey, I haven't missed out on anything in God's standards. I've just missed out on the regrets of this world. If you follow Jesus, you're going to miss out. But you're going to miss out on the world's regrets. Statement and I'm done. Faithfully following Jesus may lead to rejection, but it will never lead to regret. But it's hard. Oh, it's hard. But it'll never lead to regret. As hard as it is to say, I would rather suffer the rejection of the world because I chose to live for Christ than die having been rejected by God because I chose not to. And I would say in love to you, if you're halting between two opinions, straddling the fence of God and the world, church on Sundays, the world through the week. I lived according to the Bible in areas that I think I should, and I'll toss the Bible aside in areas that, nah, I don't really agree with. If that's you today, how long halt you between two opinions? How long you can get pulled by the world and then pulled by God and pulled by the world and put, hey, Followers of Christ are faithfully sold out to God, not the world. And I unapologetically stand before you as your pastor and say, it's worth living according to the book. How do I know? Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, put them up there and we're going to have invitation. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye. When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It doesn't end there. Rejoice. Don't walk out hanging your head low because you're a follower of Christ. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets like John the Baptist, which were before you. You'll miss out on earth, but you won't be the one missing out in eternity. So take a little rejection down here to get an eternity worth of acceptance. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.